0: Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel here and Stand a Reason, and I am uh, looking at my Bible here, the, my big Bible that I keep at home and I bring to the show where I've got all my scratch in it and all my notes and everything. And on the inside cover, when I open it up, there is a yellow post-it, which I scrawled a few words out of utter frustration. I was doing a show with Amy, I think, and we were dealing with a number of issues, and I'm thinking to myself, why are we dealing with these issues? That is, why are we dealing with issues for Christians that Christians are confused on when they shouldn't be confused? And I remember when uh, Bruce Jenner came out and uh, in, as a transgendered person, and we got a lot of emails that said— what's going on here? Help us understand it. And so my team wanted me to make a video. And I said, why do we need to make a video? Well, because people are confused. They want to know what you think. And I'm thinking, why are they confused? This is not hard. Now, I ended up making the video. And essentially, what I said in the video is that Bruce Jenner is confused. Tragically, he's confused, and and lots of other people are confused. But just because other people are confused doesn't mean we have to be confused. And I think just saying that was helpful to a lot of people. And this little post-it sticker has the words on it that really are driving my whole sentiment here, and the words simply say faithfulness is not theologically complicated. Faithfulness is not theologically complicated. When it comes to issues about Jesus being the only way, and about abortion, and about marriage, and about sex, and about gender, the Scripture speaks with clarity regarding every single one of these issues. It's not hard faithfulness is not theologically complicated. And so, what I did is I put together an article, and then I put together a talk. And I've actually been giving that talk now for a couple of months, a couple of years, actually, and I want to give it to you now. So, here it is. Faithfulness is not theologically complicated. No need for confusion. 28 years ago, I started an organization called Stand to Reason, and The purpose of Standard Reason was to train Christians to think more carefully about their convictions, and also then to take that and to go out in the public square and defend classical Christianity and classical Christian values. So the target, largely through what we did, was through Christians to make a difference in the communities where they live, okay? I will tell you in the last couple of years, for me, my motivation has changed quite a bit. We are still doing what we do, but that is not where my heart is, because my heart is no longer that concerned with non-Christians, not now. My heart is concerned with the church. And the reason I'm concerned about it is the patterns that I see happening in the last few years with regards to people who claim to be Christians. Now my big concern is to protect the body of Christ from the world out there and from the wolves inside. And right now, the church in general is thick with wolves. And so I want to talk this morning a little bit about what has been going on, at least in terms of content. And as I I have a radio show I've been doing for over 30 years, and inside my other Bible, my bigger one, the one I use at the radio show, I wrote a little post-it. I stuck it to the inside because I got so frustrated with trying to deal with issues that people were bringing up on the air that are so doggone plain in Scripture, I can't imagine why Christians are confused. And what I wrote on the inside of my Bible is, faithfulness is not theologically complicated. There are lots of complex issues in the Bible. If you saw my Bible, you'd see penciled question marks all over the margins because there's a lot of things that are hard to understand, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that it's impossible to misunderstand because the text is so clear on that. Yet at the same time, I am mystified and distressed by how many people who identify themselves as Christians are confused on some of these issues, for which I understand there is a tsunami of pressure coming from the culture. And I think they're confused for two different reasons. One of them is that they just don't know. And because many churches are just shallow in the way they teach Christianity or represent Christianity. Now I'm not here to beat up on the bride, but I just want to make an obs- this observation. I've been a Christian almost 50 years. I became a Christian as a young adult. Yet I see in that time a tremendous theological shallowness not represented from here. With Doug and with Austin, that's not what's going on in this church. So this is not a veiled criticism of my own community here, but generally speaking, yes, shallow, no depth of understanding. It's one of the reasons I wrote the story of reality, to give the broad picture and help people to understand, but I think there's another reason, because of the pressure, there's a lot of people, especially young people, who care more about what their friends think of them than what Jesus thinks of them. And this anguishes me to no end as I see large members of the body of Christ get, let's just call it progressive. And these are people who are in churches and identify as Christians in some sense, but they're pluralistic with regards to salvation. In other words, Jesus isn't the only way, he's first among equals, he's a nice guy. They are sexually active as single persons. They are gay friendly. And here I don't mean appropriately friendly to people who are gay, but they are sympathetic and friendly to the activity. And supportive of all kinds of alternate sexualities now. And gender also with, I'm sorry, comfortable also with gender fluidity, as they call it. And uh, and they tend to be in favor of same-sex marriage which I realize is a fait complete after the Supreme Court, but it doesn't make it any different than what it's always been, a contradiction in terms, biblically, and I'll talk about that in a moment. They're also pro- cho- pro-choice. So you have this group of Christians, adults, especially single uh, young people, who look in all the critical areas where God's principles are under attack now, who look just like everyone else in the world, except they named themselves Christians, and they believe in Jesus after a fashion, but to them, Jesus is more or less a social warrior, social justice warrior, and not the Jesus of the New Testament. So what I like to do here is I just want to go over those four or five Things where a lot of people have drifted off into falsehood because of the pressure of the culture, and not because of ambiguity in the text. There's, I know that there's like alternate theologies that the progressive church, and this is what it's called now, the so-called progressive church. And if you don't know about that, I recommend Elisa Childers' book, Another Gospel. It's called Another Gospel. And if you're in ministry, you better read this. It's an easy read. She's a good writer, A-L-I-S-A Childers, C-H-I-L-D-E-R-S. But this group called the Progressive Church has adopted these ideas that are just like the rest of the world. And there's no good reason for it because, as I want to show you, the scripture is clear on that. And what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to parse out clever ways to persuade outsiders that our biblical views are sound. I actually think they comport with common sense in almost every single case. You don't need a Bible to know that sex is binary. Please, in any event, I, uh, I I'm not going to do apologetics. I just want to show you, on these issues, very briefly, because that's all it's going to take. What the Bible clearly teaches, so that you can be faithful since faithfulness is not theologically complex. It's not complicated. It's not difficult, at least not in the content. It is difficult to be faithful to Christ in the midst of opposition, but we haven't faced hardly any opposition in this culture. What we're experiencing now is huge compared to the past, but it's nothing compared to the last 2,000 years of Christianity, where people were burned at the stake. I'm not making this up. You know your church history, where people now are being beheaded out of faithfulness to Christ. We pay almost nothing to stand tall in the midst of the fire the culture gives us. So let's just start with salvation. First things first, okay? Okay. That trust in Jesus of Nazareth is necessary to escape eternal punishment for sin it is biblical bedrock. But it is arguable, arguably the most controversial aspect of Christianity. It's suffocatingly narrow in our a pluralistic politically correct environment. I get that. I remember doing a national TV show debate with Deepak Chopra, the number one New Age guru in the world. And this is what he was complaining about. You Christians are so, you think you know the way. How arrogant. Of course, at that moment, he was promoting a book titled, Love is the Way, which just goes to show that Everyone raising an objection to Christianity has their own understanding of what the way to God or for life or personal salvation or however you want to construe it, what the way is. They all think they know what it is, and they think they're right. But only one side is being uh, upbraided for that, and that is Christians. Some of you realize that the disciples did not choose the name Christians for themselves. That was kind of a funky name given to them by those in Antioch to make fun of them, okay? Christians called themselves something different. What do they call themselves? The way. You see this time and time again in the New Testament. Why did they call themselves the way? Because Jesus identified himself as the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, you would think that a statement like that is pretty straightforward and obvious and unequivocal, but I actually read a piece by one of these progressive Christian types who said, yeah, that isn't what Jesus meant there, and then did a spin, okay? Okay, fair enough. He has a different alternate interpretation, and if that was the only verse we had, well, then I can see where he might be able to make some other case, but it is not the only verse we have. I have actually found 100 verses in the New Testament that teach Jesus is the only way of salvation. Nine lines of argument. We have it at Stand to Reason. A little red booklet for two bucks. This was the foundation of everything that Jesus did, and it starts in the announcements of his birth. Look in Luke 2. You'll see it. You shall name his name Jesus, for he will save his people, from their sins. He wasn't a social justice warrior. He was a savior. He was a rescuer. And he was coming to rescue people that needed to be rescued and would not be rescued without him. If you read the story of reality, you'll realize, as I lay it out there, there's a reason why Jesus is the only way. It's because he's the only one who solved the problem. Without him, we can't be saved. Without him, we would have to pay our own debt before God, whose law we have violated dozens and dozens of times every single day. He's a rescuer. And just to make, I mean, just to give you a couple more passages, you can jot this down in that little bitty thing you've got to write in instead of having a nice big notebook. (laughs) John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, Jesus was speaking this to religious Jews in John chapter 8. How about the Sermon on the Mount? When I debated Deepak Chopra, he said, the Sermon on the Mount is such a wonderful teaching. I keep a copy of it in my pocket wherever I go. That's what he said. Now, he was in New York, I was in Los Angeles, I was just looking at a camera, but I should have said, show it to me. The irony is, is very soon after that, he started going after the Bible, saying you can't rely on the text because it's been copied and recopied and translated and retranslated. He got himself in a corner by making that claim because I, I know something about the details there, but in any event, he's quoting the Bible and then he's undermining the Bible. See the conflict there? Second big conflict in that conference in that conversation, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen. Enter. This is Jesus' first great discourse. He had four great discourses. This is the first one, probably the most memorable to the world. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and few are those who find it. Okay, how many ways can you take that? How many alternate interpretations are for that? For the gate is small and the way is narrow, that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Peter says, Acts chapter 4, Jesus is gone. He's resurrected. He's ascended. Peter's Pentecost, uh, a couple days, a week or so after Pentecost, there he is preaching. He's under threat of being whipped. And he says to the community there. There is salvation in none other, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Paul says in Romans 10 verses 1 through 4, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God. He's talking about the Jews. He himself is a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, He said, I know these people are zealous for God. So this covers all people who are zealous for God, but don't believe in Jesus. Jesus said, and there's a lot of verses where he said this, if you say you're zealous for God, but you reject me, you are not zealous for God. That's Jesus. Social justice warrior, meek and mild, loves everybody. That's a poke in the eye to religious folk. But Paul identifies it. He said, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance to knowledge. For not knowing about God's sense of righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Oh, I'm good enough. I'm no Hitler. Good. One was enough. But you're not any Jesus Christ either, and you're probably more like Hitler, than like Jesus. By the way, that would include me. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here. I'm pointing the finger at all of us, including me. There is salvation in none other. Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves, Paul continues, to the righteousness of Christ because of a righteousness of God, and Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. Controversial? Sure. Confusing? No. Plain as day. Absolutely plain as day. There's only one answer to the Philippian jailer's question, what must I do to be saved? Paul gave it in Acts 16, verse 30 and 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And by the way, if you don't believe, put your trust in him for what he did to rescue you, then you will not be saved, and you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment, be found wanting, and you will be banished from God's presence forever in a place of unspeakable torment that never ends. That is the consistent testimony of the New Testament, as unpleasant as that sounds to modern progressive ears. It's everywhere in the New Testament.
1: People are confused on this. Don't you be confused. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. STR outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org/outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts@str.org.
0: Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love hashtag STRask. It's our shorter, twenty-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Hey friends, would you like to be
1: encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other stancharies and followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. How about abortion?
0: I realize that scripture does not address abortion directly. And I think the times when people have tried to use verses to make the point that God condemns abortion, they've used poetic language that is equivocal, doesn't make the point clearly. I'm going to give you a biblical argument against abortion that is absolutely airtight. All right? Here's the first step. The Ten Commandments said, thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say kill, it says murder. Hebrew has two words, just like we do in English. Thou shalt not murder take a life of an innocent human being without proper justification. There's a reason why, and it's in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, I think. If this is so right back to the very beginning, if man sheds man's blood, then by man his blood shall be shed. That's capital punishment. Why? Because in the image of God, God created man. Human beings are image bearers, and because they are image image bearers, they are infinitely valuable. And if you destroy an image bearer, then you surrender your own life that's the mentality there in nine six and of course, we have in the law that's played out in more detail so here's the question though: are unborn human beings image bearers in the same sense God is referring to in Genesis? in other words, does the Genesis passage and the uh Exodus twenty passage about prohibiting murder does it apply to the unborn, okay? or put it another way, are the pre-born the same kind of living beings as those who have already been born in God's eyes? Because that's what we're looking at, the text, in God's eyes, okay? And I think the scripture gives a definitive answer to that question, and it's in Luke chapter one. Well, that's the birth narrative, right? That's when Mary is pregnant and Elizabeth is pregnant. Remember that Mary was told by the angel she is going to have a child by the Holy Spirit, and also her cousin Elizabeth, who is in the sixth month, that's the second trimester, is also a child in her old age. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit gives a third-person public verification of the first-person private revelation that she is going to have a miraculous birth. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, But if Mary goes to her parents and said, yeah, like God told me this baby is from him, you know, their reaction like, yeah, right. But the same angel who told me that said that Elizabeth is with child. So let's go see. That's the first thing she does after the Annunciation, right? She goes to see. And when she encounters Elizabeth, and she calls out to Elizabeth. Here's what the text says in Luke chapter 1. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, Elizabeth is pregnant with who? John the Baptist. And the prophecy to Zacharias was that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit when? While still in his mother's womb. That's the prophecy that comes earlier in the chapter. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that's in the text, and we all know this, the the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Who's that? That's Jesus, right? Wait a minute. She just got pregnant. The fruit of your womb is blessed. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. So John the Baptist, in his sixth month of Mary's pregnancy, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Mary, I'm sorry, Elizabeth is as well, because the baby's within her. And she bears testimony to Mary being the mother of the Lord already. So in other words, John the Baptist in the second trimester is filled with the Holy Spirit because he is in the presence of Jesus, who is a zygote. So here's my question again. Were John the Baptist and Jesus their same selves before they, before they were born as they were after they were born? And the biblical answer is obviously what? Absolutely. Therefore, if Elizabeth would have gotten an abortion, she would have aborted not a future person, not a potential person. She would have aborted John the Baptist, the prophet of God. If Mary would have gotten abortion, even in her first trimester, she would not have aborted a potential Messiah, a future Christ. She would have aborted the incarnate Son of God, even when he was a zygote. That is the unmistakable implication of the language of this text. Now, I realize that for many of you, this is not an academic issue. It is deeply personal as you consider your past. I understand that. I can't identify with it, but I certainly can empathize with it. The question is, is murder killing an innocent human being, forgivable? Absolutely. Absolutely and completely. Here's the verse that I want on my tombstone, Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. And I think of this every time I think whether my own sin is so big that it will disqualify me in some way from salvation. And here's what the psalmist said. He says, Lord, If you should mark iniquity. In other words, if God's keeping track of all of this stuff, if you should mark iniquity against us, he is keeping track. Revelation 20, their books are open. But if he's keeping track against us, if you should mark iniquity, oh Lord, who could stand? Of course, the point is nobody could in any individual life, the iniquity of the individual would overwhelm them. Our iniquities, like the wind, carry us away, Jeremiah says. But, he continues, there is forgiveness with you that you might be praised. That's going on my tombstone, if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> and if it doesn't, I'm going to come back and haunt somebody. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, oh, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you might be praised. Let's look for a moment at gender, and I have to start moving quickly because I'm a little bit late, but there's only one service. I, I love that. Doug's over there. He didn't care about the time. He just keeps going and going and going and going, and he's up here. There is one thing that everybody knows about the world, and that is that there's something wrong with the world. Everybody knows it. It doesn't matter where you live or when you lived. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. But it wasn't always like that. In the beginning, God made it the way it was supposed to be. And then it got broken afterwards because of our own behaviors. But Genesis tells us the way the world was when God first made it, when all that he made was very good, Genesis 131. It tells us the way the world is supposed to be, the way the world was before the evil that started distorting things. And here's what the text says, Genesis one twenty seven and 28. I suspect virtually everyone in this room knows this passage. God created man in his own image. That was our point regarding abortion. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I just want to ask a question, because like I said, a lot of this stuff is common sense. You don't need to read Genesis 1 to know that human beings are, are uh, have binary sexuality, because that's the only way they can reproduce. This is simply straightforward, all right? Now, I understand that there are people that are confused about this, and I'm sympathetic to that. I think it's a terrible circumstance because those people are are split inside. They have a body that indicates one sex, and they have a mental perspective that indicates a different one. By their own admission, they are broken. Do you see this? I'm just describing. I'm not condescending at all. They are broken. Unfortunately, what the culture is saying is that their body is wrong and their belief is right, instead of saying that their belief is mistaken and their body is correct. What does God say? God says their belief is mistaken and their body is right because he made them male and female. And every single place that you have a man, a male in scripture, he is addressed by male pronouns, he, him. Every single place in Scripture, from beginning to end, where you have a female, she is addressed with female pronouns. The point I'm making here, and I'm not giving any, any recommendations about how to deal with this in culture, I'm not going there, that's a separate issue. I want you to be clear, according to the Bible and according to common sense, sex and gender are synonyms sex and gender are synonyms okay uh, I know this is controversial um that people will consider what their real identity is we just did a piece on this the red pen logic if you follow that on YouTube, Red Pen Logic, these are short pieces that Tim Barnett from our team produces. They're a lot of fun, but they're meant to go after memes that say silly things. Like this one uh, male who is a transgender said, I was assigned maleness at birth. Uh, Again, I don't mean to be crude, please. No one is assigned a penis no one is assigned a vagina. That comes with the that comes with the package. Do you see that? It isn't like the doctor saying, "There's one. Um, give that one a penis. Uh, or give that one a vagina. Don't give that one anyone. It's really ugly. We don't want them reproducing or something like that. You know." no it's it's just it's 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 the way reality is structured and when you have beliefs that are inconsistent with the way reality is structured then you have false beliefs and if the false belief is causing you real problems this is when we gather together and try to bring comfort and help and healing to that but that is not the way the world is going because the world is not going god's way and many in the church are not going God's way. And they mistake that for compassion and love. It is not. Compassion and love are necessary, but we don't push people out of love or compassion towards the falsehood that is destroying them emotionally and sometimes destroys them physically because the suicide rates are so high on that. Scripture is not ambiguous or unclear on this issue. Binary sexuality. Uh, is also key to understanding God's purpose for something else in culture that's been confused, and that's marriage. When Jesus was asked about the legitimacy of divorce, he answered this way. This is in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. So if anybody asks you what your view of marriage is in conversation, you you employ the tactic I call what a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) You put it on Jesus. Here was Jesus' view. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I have Jesus' view. So then if they take exception with your view, they're taking exception with Jesus' view. Do you see the the tactical value in that? Okay, here's what Jesus said. Have you not read, Matthew 19, 4 and 5, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, notice the binary sexuality there, no confusion in Jesus' mind at all, and and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, basically, uh, following what, whatever God joins together, let no man tear asunder. That's a lot of times in marriage vows, all right? It's, certainly, it's implicit in the vows. It's forever. This is for a lifetime. That's Jesus' view. Okay, let me give you a summary. You can write the summary down because it's really easy to remember. Captures all the details. Jesus' view of marriage was this. One man with one woman becoming one flesh, that's sex, just saying, for one lifetime. One man with one woman becoming one sex, one flesh rather, for one lifetime. That's it. Do you realize that one statement of Jesus summarized there in that aphorism I just gave you covers every single biblical prohibition regarding sexuality? Which is uh, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and bestiality. In no particular order. I'm not trying to group those to make one look worse than the other. They're just all bad. They're all wrong. They are all inconsistent with God's design for human beings. Okay? In one fell swoop, Jesus covers them all. Sex is wonderful, it's fine, and it's free between a man and a woman who are married together, committed for life. That's Jesus' view. And it's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It isn't hard to follow. And according to Jesus' thinking, then same sex marriage or any other creative variation, and by the way, in churches, progressive churches, they are arguing now for, (laughs) I'm trying to think of the polyamory, think of the terms. It's hard to keep up with the language. Polyamory, that's like, Many loves. Yes, you have monogamy, you have polygamy, and now you've got polyamory. That means group marriage. In the church, or I should say in churches. Not Jesus' view. Not complicated. Not unclear. Why? because any other creative variation is wrong for the same reasons divorce is wrong, that it corrupts God's good purpose for marriage and family. Okay, right back to the beginning. God set it up this way for a reason. The further we deviate from the way God set it up, the more corrupted we become. Now, I don't mean just morally corrupted as if I'm using, like, rhetorically-laden language here. If you, how many have a diesel vehicle? Okay, hey, tell me, out. you put regular gas in that diesel, what's going to happen? Yeah. right? Because the that engine was not designed for regular gas, and vice versa. Things are made for purposes, and they are designed to function well by the designer, even in human terms. God made human beings for a purpose to share friendship and happiness with Him and to multiply in a certain way based on a unit called the family, which is the best environment for children to prosper and flourish, and humanity to flourish. You move away from that, the further you move away from that, the less human flourishing you have, the more unhappiness you have, the more disgruntled. even in a fallen world. I mean, that aggravates it, of course. Even under the best of circumstances, following God's plan in a fallen world is hard. You deviate from that, you sow to the wind, the prophet said, you reap the whirlwind. Consequently, biblically, the word marriage has no meaning when used of same sex couples. Since heterosexual union is inherent to God's definition of marriage, and there is nothing ambiguous about Jesus' view, culture is confused. Don't you be confused.
1: Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email. Booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues in science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh,
0: clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day.
2: What does a bushel of corn and a 2002 Dodge Neon have to do with apologetics? When donated, both enabled STR to provide Christians like you with the resources you need to gain confidence in defending your faith. There are some really creative ways to support STR financially. You can easily give items like vehicles, stock, jewelry, and gift cards through STR's partnership with iDonate. iDonate takes care of selling the items and then gives the proceeds to STR. You can also give through the purchases you're already making on Amazon. Visit Amazon Smile and select Stand to Reason as your charity of choice. Amazon will then donate a portion of what you spend. You'll find all the information on Creative Ways to Give by going to str.org slash donate. Donation questions link at the bottom of the page will give you all the information you need. That's str.org slash donate.
0: You know, if you've gained anything from listening to Stand to Reason, I'd really be thrilled to hear it from you. I love to take your questions, of course, but I also want your feedback. So here's what you can do. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. That kind of thing really helps us to get the word out so more Ambassadors for Christ can find the show and become equipped to stand confidently. And you never know, I might just give you a shout out on the air to show you my appreciation for your positive review. I value you as a faithful listener. I look forward to reading what you think about the show. Thanks. There's something else that we learn from Jesus Instructions here. This would be my last point. According to Jesus, in a marriage, a man cleaves to, that is, becomes one flesh with a woman, his wife. Their physical bodies are joined together in a deep and profound sexual union of body and soul. Now, this body and soul part Um, is kind of implied by Paul's directives regarding sex. And I think it's either 1st or 2nd Corinthians. I couldn't find it this morning when I was looking quickly to find the reference. But remember the part where Paul says that God made your body a temple of the Holy Spirit? And some people apply it this way. So why you make it into a pizza hut? Paul's Directives there have absolutely nothing to do with whether you drink or smoke or chew or go with those that do. Okay, it has nothing to do with whether you're overweight or slender. It has nothing to do with whether you're sick or not. Because if it did, then any sick person wouldn't be a fit temple. And apparently, Paul was sick, had eye problems, so Paul wasn't a very good temple. If that's the reading, that's not what he means if you look in the context, he is talking about moral behavior. So if we are temples of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit indwells in us, then when we engage in immoral behavior, what are we doing? We are taking the Holy Spirit with us. When we do that, I have a little sticker on my computer. It says Corum Deo, C-O-R-U-M-D-E-O, Corum Deo, in the presence of God. And I want to, it's a reminder that I'm living my life and I want to live my life always in the presence of God. But even if I don't want that, guess what? He's still there. And if you're a Christian, he's not just there, he's here. And so, whatever behaviors that we participate in, particularly sexual behaviors, is the point he's making in that passage, when we join ourselves to a harlot, Paul is saying, there, There is a spiritual dimension to that. And so sex is not just two bodies coming together. There's something deeper, a deeper union, which God intended. And when we follow God's plan, that union is deep and profound. And when we don't, that union gets sullied. We get desensitized. It's like we get emotionally scarred after violating time and time and time again, then it becomes more difficult to have that attachment. Now, that's not in the text, but that's just an observation. In some ways, autobiographical, but I'm not the only one that can say that, given the way the culture's been the last 50 years. In other words, Genesis 2 does not allow for the encouragement of alternate sexualities, okay? And as I mentioned before, Jesus' comments about marriage kind of cover all those bases, but I want to just speak more directly to homosexuality, because this is the really big issue on the horizon right now. It's not on the horizon, it's right in our midst. It is the thing that we're getting hammered by more and more, and not only hammered by, but your children, because... Promotion of all of this stuff is going all the way down to the lowest grades through the educational system. Okay, it's happening here, even in our communities. Okay, so let's just talk about homosexuality for just a moment because I don't want there to be any confusion. I'm not here to beat up on gays. That's not my point. And I hope this isn't what I'm encouraging in your own mind. I, wa- I want you to see what the Bible says. That's it. I understand that every depiction in popular culture is overwhelmingly positive when it comes to gays. And by the way, I fly Delta. I fly a lot. I fly Delta. I'm walking down. Last week, I'm coming from uh, South Carolina, and I'm walking down the jetway, and there are all the posters of of people who fly Delta. You know, these are characteristic kinds of passengers. They have all the politically correct groups, including two gay guys that are literally cuddling. They're not just sitting together. There's another couple, uh, uh, male and female, no wedding rings on a junket together, okay? Everything except a family. There is no family depicted there. There is no mother and father and child depicted in any photographs of Delta. This is just a subtle way of re-educating us. So I sit down and I open my screen and they give the, here's the thing that we promote, you know, the first movie, you hit English and the first, some of you travel and know what I'm talking about. There it was, Queer Eye. And there are five exuberantly happy gay guys right there. So there's a, this is, this is discipleship. I went through the new offerings. There are 36 of them, 20% had gay themes. What is that? Discipleship. The world is discipling you on how to think about these things, and it always presents it in the most attractive manner. All I want to do is help you to see what God says about it, all right? Not to create animosity, but to create clarity. Romans 1, verse 26 and 27, gives us the crispest clearest characterization of what's going on, and there are other references, and I know these are dismissed as clobber verses, all right, but if I'm reading these accurately, I'm not the one who's clobbering. It is God who's doing the clobbering because it's God's Word. Do you see that? All these maneuvers that the culture has. It says here in Romans 1, verse 26 and 27, that God gave them over to degrading passions, for the men, now watch the language really clearly here. This is the New American Standard. I don't like the way some other translations work on this, because they leave a door out, and the words in the Greek don't allow that. So here's NASB. God gave them over to degrading passions. So what he's about to describe, he calls a degrading passion. For men abandoned the natural function of the woman. The Greek word there for function is kresis, and it means function. It's talking about plumbing. It's the way women are made to fit men. And what Paul says is that men are abandoning the woman who was made to fit him, and rather they're going somewhere else with their sexual desires. God gave them over to degrading passions. The men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, and he continues to go. I just want you to see clearly that this takes us all the way back to the beginning. Male and female, he created them, be fruitful and multiply. God gave man a woman to have sex with. He gave woman a man to have sex with that's what God's plan was. And what, when, when this is devi- deviated from, as described here in Romans 1, which, by the way, includes in the description, I didn't read it, lesbianism too. It's the only reference of lesbianism in, in Scripture. But here, Paul is not just talking about some screwy thing that's happening there in the Roman world and with pederasty and guys abusing their power against young kids that are in the temple prostitution system. So. That's baloney it's not there. He's talking about the creation order. This is one of the most dramatic characterizations that Paul ever gives in the scripture of natural theology. Look at the world, look at the way it's made. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, basically is what he's saying there, and everybody can see that. Yet even so, they suppress the truth that unrighteousness, and this is an example of it. They say no to God's purposes for sex. The man says no to the woman God made for him. That's the point. It doesn't say no to the natural desires, and, and gays can say, well, my natural desires for the same sex. It, you can't get away with that if you see the language in its precision, is my point. That's the problem with some of these other translations. They say natural desires. It says natural function of the woman. Anyway, since natural desires go with natural functions, the sexual passion that exchanges the natural function of sex for an unnatural function, in this case homosexuality, is what Paul calls a degrading passion. Paul's language, not mine. Well, there's more I could say about that, but I'm just running out of time. I think you get the point. God's solution for satisfying our sexual appetites is marriage. In fact, he says this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. That is very pro-sex. Within the confines that he has decided for. And then, it has the best chances of flourishing. I realize even in a fallen world, even the best circumstances, marriage, that sometimes can be challenged. Nevertheless, that's the best environment. And any other deviation, whether it's fornication or adultery or homosexuality or bestiality, and I'll just say pictures of those things or videos of those things, tear you away from God's perfect design and pollute it. I want to close with a sobering image here. There is a telling passage in the Passion narrative where Pilate is confronted by a mob and he must decide what he's going to do with Jesus because the mob has been incited. This is the same group largely that were saying Hosanna, Hosanna on Palm Sunday. And now uh, within a week, they are incited by the religious leadership to demand Jesus' crucifixion. And so, Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. Maybe you don't realize this. His wife is having dreams, and his wife is telling him, don't mess with that guy. He's a problem. Leave him alone. And he knows that Jesus is innocent of anything worthy of death, but he is facing the mob. Keep that in mind. And so, he tries a compromise. He says, we, we, we got Barabbas here, and we've got Jesus. We're usually set set somebody free Who would you like us to set free? And he's hoping that they're going to say Jesus, but they don't. They say, give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer instead of the Savior. And here's what Mark 15, 15 says. Mark it. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Wishing to please the crowd. Many in Christendom today are taking their cues from Pilate. They are more concerned with satisfying the crowd than being faithful to Jesus. They champion the criminals and they turn their back on the Savior. Don't Let that be you. Faithfulness is not theologically complicated.